Amen. I'm so thankful for those children who sang for us this morning and have been participating in our Christmas pageant. And if you have not seen it, I hope you have a ticket to see it this afternoon. Just will lift your spirits and encourage you and point you to Jesus, uh, reminding you of what we really celebrate this time of year. So thank you to all the folks who put all sorts of time and um, sacrifice to make the Christmas pageant just a real act of worship, a real sacrifice of praise to God. So I just uh, thank God for you. Well, the past few weeks, uh, we've been looking at the story of Christmas through the passage of Scripture, through a passage of Scripture in Matthew's Gospel. And the, the Gospel writers, as I've said time and time before, they use different approaches in writing the text for their particular book. And uh, you can see their interest and uh, maybe their, um, the, the questions that they deal with or the uh, personalities that they have kind of uh, ring through uh, the text. And one of the issues that Matthew seems to be uh, very interested in in his gospel account is how Jesus fulfills ancient prophecy. That's something that he's always paying attention to. In fact, in the first chapter of Matthew's gospel, he begins a pattern he carries throughout the entire book. Uh, He comments after an event or a specific detail in the narrative by saying, now all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Matthew wants to make sure you don't miss the point. He wants to make sure the reader catches on to what's happening in this moment. That Jesus is not just some random guy. He's not just some great teacher. He's not just somebody who knew how to draw a crowd. He's writing to convince us that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the promised one of old. He fulfills the prophecies, and he has come to make things right. Well, there were several prophecies that were fulfilled in Christ's birth uh, that we see in the text. First of all, um, Jesus was born of a virgin. Well, that is what Isaiah prophesied would happen hundreds of years prior to its um, occurring. And so, Matthew is saying right here, another, another prophecy fulfilled. Also, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Well, that's exactly where Micah said he would be born. Once again, Matthew says prophetic fulfillment. This is who, this is Jesus the Messiah. We also know that Jesus was born from the line of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. He also comes specifically from the tribe of Judah. He's called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. All of this is prophetic fulfillment. He also comes from the line of Jesse and of David. And so, over and over again, we're seeing that Jesus is exactly who the prophets had been talking about. There's even a prophecy in the book of Numbers from the prophet named Balaam. Balaam speaks of a star that would shine in Judah. Surely, that's the same star that started shining in Judah at the time of Christ's birth that the Magi saw. So, it occurs to me, as you read over and over again all of this prophecy in the Scriptures, that the Messiah fulfilled in His birth, that you would think that those who best knew the Word of God, who were most familiar with the prophecies, would have been the first to pick up on the fact that something extraordinary is happening among us. But it turns out that was not the case. It was pagans, pagans in the east, who were hundreds, if not a thousand miles away, who see the star in the skies, it catches their attention, they interpret it to be this announcement that a king had been born in Judah. And so they are 
wanting to go see this king born in Judah. And they, they are motivated to do that and even set out evidently before the chief priests and the scribes even catch on what's happening in their backyard. They don't even know it's taking place. And so these magi from the east, they arrive in Jerusalem, followed the star there, but the star was insufficient to lead them precisely where they needed to go. And I think it's a good thing for us to uh, recognize they needed the Word of God. So maybe this star led them part of the way, but in the end they needed the revelation from God. And so they start asking around of what, what, what is this? What, where, where is this child who's been born king of the Jews? Herod, the king, catches wind of this taking place. And he is the one who brings all of this to the attention of the, um, of the magi. I mean, excuse me, of the chief priests and the scribes. He's the one who says, they're saying this has happened. Where would it have happened? And so I want you to listen to Matthew 2, verses 4 and 5. It says, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he, that's Herod, Herod inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And they go on to quote the prophet. So these religious scholars, the people who knew the prophecies about the Messiah better than anybody else, couldn't appear to be even couldn't appear to be more disinterested in the fact that something's happening in Bethlehem. Now, maybe they had been duped before. Maybe there had been other messiahs who they said came out of Bethlehem. I really don't know. Or perhaps they had in their mind what they thought this would look like, and this story that they're hearing doesn't quite fit into that box of what they would expect to happen when the Messiah is born in Bethlehem. Or maybe they just really couldn't care. Maybe they're just not that interested. They're not looking. Maybe they're too busy with the local news. Maybe national politics is on their mind, or last night's game, or this strange weather. So they're too concerned with that to even think about the arrival of the Messiah. Not so with the Magi. They journeyed hundreds of miles. You just can't overstate how committed they were to what they thought they saw what they believed by faith. So they couldn't be more excited about what they might find at the end of this journey. So it really goes to show you that it doesn't matter where you are when you begin your journey towards God. The religious leaders, they knew the word. I mean, it's just right in their backyard, all these things that are happening. I mean, they could have quoted these prophets from off the top of their mind. Everything they needed to know about God right at their fingertips, but they didn't even lean into it. But here are these magi, very far from God, very far away from even the location of where all this is happening, and they're drawn to see this child who has been born king of the Jews. Now, there's no indication that they worshiped the one true God prior to this, but they were genuine seekers, and they came from a very long way in order to see what was happening in in Judah. The Scriptures say in Jeremiah 29, 13, You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. The story of the Magi who travel to find Jesus is really a story designed for the seeker. I don't know how you got here today. I don't know what you're looking for. I don't know what sort of baggage you bring into this moment. I don't know what your spiritual background is. I don't know what sort of commitments you've made to the Scriptures or to the Lord. I don't know the mistakes you've made, but if you come here looking for answers to life, and if you come here looking for solutions to problems, you're in the right place. Because we have found the answer, 
and his name is Jesus. The scriptures say, if you will simply seek him, you'll find him. So the Magi came to Bethlehem seeking a person. They wanted to see the king. Their desire was to worship him. And I would imagine they had questions with all of that. I imagine that they, maybe they were drawn by curiosity. They didn't know what all of it meant, but they knew they wanted to see this king. Well, the good news is they found the king. And so this morning we're going to return once again to the same text we've been in for a couple of weeks. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in the second chapter. And once again, I am going to begin by reading to you verses 1 through 3, and then I'll read verse 11. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Verse 11, after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come before you in worship. And Lord, we're inspired by what the Magi were motivated to see, and then how they responded, which was to bow down and worship Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So, Father, in this moment, we come to worship you. We thank you for the good gift of a church family and the opportunity to study your word together. And so, Lord, would you give us insight today? Would you make this scripture live to us? Would you convict us and challenge us? And Father, rather than walking away with nostalgia or a feel-good, a good feeling, may we walk away compelled by the gift of Jesus who died for us on the cross. Draw us all to Jesus today. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Jesus is visited by magi from uh, the east bearing extravagant gifts for a baby, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, have you ever thought about uh, those gifts before, those three gifts? And by the way, the reason they say there were three magi is just because there were three gifts. I guess the assumption was surely none of the magi would have shown up without a gift, right? Uh, these, these would be, you know, good magi, good magi who knew if you come to the party, you got to bring the gift. Uh, but who knows? I mean, this could have been like, you know, sometimes people go to a party or shower and they all pitch in together and they buy it. And so, so maybe they invested together and it's like, we're going to give bigger gold because we'll all contribute together. So it could have been a lot of magi. You know, we, we don't really know. It could have been less than three. I don't know. Um, and most of us, though, when we read about these treasures, these gifts that were given, we don't really have a context for the two-thirds or for two-thirds of the gifts that were given to Jesus. We know about gold. We understand that. We, we know the value of it. We know why this would be an appropriate thing to bring before the king of kings. It's precious. It's valuable. It's symbolic. But what about frankincense and myrrh? Both are um, a resin. They come from different trees. Both were fragrant. They were considered to be valuable. Uh, now, we could just read that and, um, like we, most of the time we do, and we'd say, okay, well, I'm glad that he got frankincense and myrrh. I'm sure that was helpful to Mary or, you know, whatever. But, you know, it was the uh, early church father, Origen of Alexandria, who is credited with first 
helping us to see meaning in these gifts. Origen was a brilliant Christian thinker born about 150 years after Jesus' resurrection, and he used allegory in interpreting the Scriptures. Now, I do want to say to you, I don't recommend that. I don't think that that's a great way to study the Scriptures, and the reason is is because allegory can lead lead you really far away from the meaning of the text, because you read into it whatever you want to read into it, right? But I would say Origen was careful in a lot of ways with allegory, and in doing so, he gave us a lot of great insight into the Scriptures and even into theology. So in commenting on Matthew 2, Origen underscored the meaning of the gifts. He writes, gold as to a king, myrrh as to one who was mortal, and incense as to God. So that explanation of the meaning of gifts has been agreed to by preachers and teachers and scholars throughout the centuries, but even our hymn writers, you know, have been inspired by it to pen lyrics that uh, refer back to the meaning provided by origin. So the gift of frankincense reminds us that King Jesus is also our God. So this morning, we're going to look at Jesus in three ways, the worship baby, the eternal son, and the sovereign God. And we're going to begin with Jesus, this worshiped baby. Uh, We have now spent three weeks on these magi. Matthew tells us they announced upon their arrival in Jerusalem, we've come to worship. They were genuine seekers. They were just, not just curious travelers. They were not just um, cultural observers. I wonder what they do this time of year kind of thing. They believed there was one in Judah who was worthy of worship. And so verse 11 says, when they walked into the home where Jesus was living, they found the child with his mother Mary. Matthew tells us they fell to the ground and worshiped him. And when they did, they opened up their treasures and they gave these gifts of gold and myrrh. And specifically, what we're going to focus on this morning is frankincense. I'm sure very few of you are familiar with frankincense at all. That's not something we stock up on. Maybe some of you do. I was thinking that maybe this whole movement towards um, natural remedies and essential oils probably leads people to get frankincense. I don't know. But it's, it's, um, you know, we don't stock up on gold because we don't want it in our house because it's so valuable, right? I mean, we have some gold, but then the rest of it we like to leave in the, the vaults, right? Well, it's not the case with frankincense and myrrh. The reason we don't stock up on them is not because they're so valuable. I mean, they are, you know, worthwhile elements out there. But back in Jesus' day, they were very valuable. And it's because of the way that they were used. So why did they give Jesus frankincense? Or how was frankincense used? Or what was its purpose? Frankincense literally means pure incense, frankincense. It's a resin that comes from the bark of a tree um, that grows in South Arabia. And when it was extracted, it kind of leaves this milky white substance, and it's used as incense. It's aromatic resin. So you can, as it burns, the smoke just kind of, you know, is is aromatic. And among the Jews, it was used in meal offerings, so for worship. It was part of the sanctioned worship of God. In fact, frankincense would be stored in the chamber of the sanctuary in the temple, because there's this process by which they would develop the uh, incense to be used in worship. And Part of the process was using frankincense. In fact, in Exodus chapter 30, it refers to frankincense and says the frankincense belongs to God and God alone. So what the priests would do in worship is they would place burning coals on the uh, altar of incense, which is this gold stand that would be right out in front of the Holy of Holies. So they would put burning coals on that, and then they would take frankincense and they would sprinkle it over these coals so that this smoke would start to come out of this altar of incense, and it would rise heavenward. Symbolic. 
symbolic of the prayers and the words of thanksgiving coming from the priests and the people and rising up to God. In fact, we sing a song like that. You're worthy of it all, for from you are all things, and to you are all things. You deserve the glory. And then it says, day and night, night and day, let incense arise. Well, the idea is not just that let the smoke burn, I mean, not let the incense burn. It really is let prayers arise. Let these expressions of thanksgiving go up before God. So whether it was intended to be um, given to God for, or to Jesus for the reason Um, What we do know is the fact they gave him frankincense reminds us that King Jesus is God. Because just like gold is to go to a king, incense is to go to God. Now, I know that this is the point where some people want to check out on us. The idea that Jesus would be something more than just a good teacher, uh, more than just, um, uh, you know, one who inspires us, is kind of a bridge too far for a lot of people. They're drawn to Jesus, the wise, loving man, the, the one who gives um, inspirational uh, thoughts, the one who teaches us to love, the kind of the heartwarming idea of this uh, Jesus who's this incredible leader. Um, that, that's what they want, but they cannot accept that Jesus is God in the flesh. That's a bridge too far. In fact, many intelligent people would claim that Jesus never believed he was God. They argue that's kind of a modern development, that it's not You know, in the original text, it's not something that's argued from Scripture. They claim that just came up later. You know, like, what are we going to do? Well, let's worship him now. They claim that Jesus never thought he was God or even claimed to be God. The problem is the Scriptures tell a different story. Jesus did claim to be God. He was worshiped as God. That's what's happening here. In Matthew 2, the Magi come in. They bow down before him and they worship him. Now, there's no indication that God intervenes at this moment and says, no, Stop. Don't worship him. He's not God. He allows them to worship. And of course, it's here in the scriptures. But it's not just when he was a baby. In Matthew 14, we can read how Jesus walked on the water. And verse 33 says, uh, in chapter 14, and those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. They worshiped Jesus. We see the same thing taking place during the triumphal entry. As Jesus is parading into the city, they gather with palm branches, they shout these words of victory towards him. It's an act of worship. They are worshiping Jesus on his way into Jerusalem where he will be ultimately arrested, put on trial, crucified. Following the resurrection, Jesus is worshiped. Scriptures describe some that would worship at the feet of the resurrected Jesus. And there's a famous encounter. Uh, between uh, the disciple Thomas and Jesus. Of course, Thomas is known as the doubter. And he doubted because all the other disciples saw Jesus, and they said, he's alive. And he said, there is no way I'm going to believe that unless I can actually put my hands there, unless I can actually touch the wound in his side or put my hand there in his hands where the wound is. I, I, I can't believe he's alive. Well, guess what? Jesus answered that request. He shows up and he says, right here, Thomas, put your hands right here. It's me. And the scriptures kind of tell us how Thomas responds here. John chapter 20, verse 28, Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. He called Jesus God. He worshiped him there in the moment. So it is clear from the scriptures that Jesus accepts the worship of people. He reveals himself to be God. Now that's important because Jesus is a faithful Jew. And uh, there is a ban against worshiping gods who are not the one true God. In Exodus 34, verse 14, 
For you shall not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. So here's Jesus, this good teacher of the law, faithful adherent to the Jewish text, yet he allows people to worship him. If he did not believe he was God, then he would not have allowed it. He could not have allowed it. He would have put a stop to it. That's not why the text reveals why. Because Jesus is God. Jesus receives worship because he's God. And a fascinating thing kind of takes place here. Uh, Jesus is born at a specific moment in time. So the question becomes, has a new God just been born? Is this a beginning for a new God? Or maybe this is a beginning for Jesus to be God. Is that what's taking place here? That's an important question for us to respond to. And what I want to make sure you understand today is that Jesus does not become God here when he's born. Jesus has always been God. He's God from the beginning. So I want us to consider that Jesus is the eternal son. Do you remember how I mentioned that the gospel writers all take different approaches while um, pinning their uh, books? Well, you know, we're grateful for what Luke and Matthew share with us about the details of the nativity. But John takes a totally different approach. He doesn't, give, he doesn't talk about the shepherds and the magi and the angels. He doesn't talk about uh, the decrees that sent them to uh, Bethlehem. He starts out in a really poetical way. And his approach to the story of Jesus coming into our world helps us to kind of connect some of the theological dots that might be questions that we have in our minds. So at the beginning of his gospel, he doesn't begin with the genealogy. He doesn't begin with the state of affairs in the world. Rather, he he goes way back. He goes back before all of those things happen. In fact, he anchors his text way back in the very beginning of time. Look with me at John chapter 1, where we'll spend the rest of our time, verses 1 through 3. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, Nothing came into being that has come into being. So John here is writing about Jesus. That becomes very clear in the context of these couple of verses. And we understand from the context, John is thinking about Jesus when he says, in the beginning was the Word. He's referring to Jesus. So those first three words, when we read in the beginning, it should remind us of another book of the Bible's beginning, right? The book of Genesis, in the beginning. That's what John is getting at here. And... Um, I think it's important, though, to indicate this phrase is pointing to a moment before time began. So not on the very first day, but he's actually going back further, before there was a day. And that's really important, because whenever people think of a baby being born, very often their thought is, is before that there was no baby. In fact, this became a subject of debate in the early church about Jesus, if prior to his birth was there a Jesus. They needed to properly identify who Jesus is. And a lot of heresy kind of came out of these discussions. In fact, it went back and forth to determine what the deity of Christ. Is Jesus God? And they developed positions on Jesus. Some of them totally undercut who Jesus actually is. But fortunately, faithful followers of Jesus did not give ground to the heretics. It was Athanasius. Athanasius famously said of Jesus, there never was when he was not. Let me just tell you, that's a phrase. If you want to anchor your kids in the truth of God's Word, that's a great truth to remind them of. 
There never was when he was not. Part of the reason there, there never was when he was not is according to John 1.3, there's a logical issue. Because Jesus is called creator. So if he's creator, he had to be there before anything else came into being. Well, all of this points to the fact that Jesus is not some Messiah created by the Father. He's not just a messenger that God fashioned together in order to accomplish some purpose. Jesus is uncreated, is uncreated. He is, and he always has been. There never was when he was not, because Jesus is the eternal son. John refers to the eternal son as the word, and that's a translation of a Greek word, logos. You've probably heard that before. Evidently, uh, Hebrew and Greek scholars were used to the poetic use of this word logos. It was a term connected to beginnings. It invoked creative power, and we know that because, of course, that's the same thing that happened uh, in the beginning of time, is that it was the Word of God that was the creative power. Psalm 33, verse 6, by the Word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth, all their host. So, Jesus is the Word. He's the Logos, which is to say Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He didn't show up in the middle of the story. He didn't become necessary after the rebellion in Eden. Jesus has been from the very beginning. So if Jesus is the eternal son, we're not only to worship him without cessation, without ending, but we are called to obey Jesus without hesitation. Because he's not just a big brother. He's not just an inspirational figure. He's not just a divine rescuer. He is God. And the proper response to deity is obedience. Now in Matthew 2, we see the Magi come from afar to worship him. He's the worship baby. John tells us that before he was born in Bethlehem, Jesus was. He's the eternal son. Finally, this baby in the manger is revealed to be the sovereign God. Notice the middle phrase of John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The text does not say, and the Word became God. In fact, it's reiterated, that third phrase of John 1.1, and the Word was God. Jesus, the Word, the Logos, does not become God in this moment here. Now, He does become flesh. In fact, if you have your Bibles open, you can look at verse 14. It says, and the Word became flesh. In other words, He was not flesh, and then He became flesh. The state of being for Jesus changed. He emptied Himself. He took on the flesh of a baby. He became a human. So, He became flesh. But here we, is a d- d- difference here, because that's a description of the incarnation. Jesus becomes flesh, but he does not become God. Why? Because he was with God, and he was God. Now, to be with God is more than just a description of his location. You know, well, he's with God. Where is he? He's with God. That's not what it's saying. It's actually um, uh, implying that there's a um, difference or a distinction between Jesus the Logos and God the Father. Uh, so it's drawing a distinction. So in other words, he's there with them, but he's not, okay? That, that's that's kind of what it's trying to say. But it's also describing this thoroughly interactive relationship of God the Father with God the Son. We call it Trinity. We believe that eternal triune God reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, distinct attributes, distinct personal attributes. He's not just, it's not just this vague thing, it's personal attributes, 
but without division of nature, essence, or being. So our position is a trinity. And it's rooted here in this verse, these three phrases. Jesus has been from the beginning. He is with God. He is God. Now, this is really critical information for the believer in Jesus. And I want to tell you why. Because this is where heresy shows up. You want to know what distinguishes the Orthodox Christian church from those who claim to be Christian churches but are truly just heretical. They're they're cult-like because they have missed the mark in understanding who Jesus is. Because they will articulate that there was a time when Jesus was not. You cannot claim the Scriptures to be true and what you're standing on as your belief if you deny that, or you believe that there was a time when Jesus was not. Now, they may say, well, yeah, Jesus is eternal, but what they mean is Jesus will always be. They don't mean Jesus always has been. When I say Jesus is the eternal Son, I mean He always has been. They will describe a beginning point for Jesus, that He was created in heaven. Additionally, they would describe that Jesus and God are two distinct beings. They would not describe Jesus as God. But that is not what we read here in John 1. In the beginning was Jesus. Jesus was with God. Jesus was God. So he's more than just a wise teacher. He's more than just a role model. He's more than just some miracle worker. He's more than just one who loves and cares and affirms. He's more than just one I can call out to as a friend. He's more than just the one who draws close to the outcast. He's more than just an inspirational, nostalgic idea. Jesus is God. Do you believe Jesus is God? I will say many don't. Many won't. They prefer to see Jesus as just this inspirational figure. Helps us through life as we model our life after him. But John, the beloved disciple of Jesus, presents Jesus as God all throughout his gospel account. There is no doubt that the scriptures declare Jesus as God. Jesus declares himself to be God. So the question is, will you believe him to be God today? Jesus didn't come just to prove himself to be God, though. He came to say, verses 4 and 5, as I conclude, says, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. John says, in Jesus, we find the life that is the light of men. It's a light that shines in darkness. Just like that guiding light that drew the magi from the east to Bethlehem. I said at the beginning of this message that the story of the magi is really a story for the seeker. There are a lot of reasons that you could think this message is not for you. But I would say that it doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter what your starting point is. It doesn't matter how far away you've been from God. It doesn't matter how much you've messed up. It doesn't matter what you've believed before today. It doesn't matter those priorities that you've put in your life that have caused you to put Jesus or church or God on the back burner. It doesn't matter how dark your life is right now. It doesn't matter how unreasonable it is to think that you've got a hope and a future. What I want to say to you today is John says, the light shines in the darkness. Jesus shining in the darkness, and he's drawing all men to you. Would you come to Jesus today? Doesn't matter where you come from. Doesn't matter how far away you are. It only matters why you come. Have you come to see him and to worship him as king? That's the invitation that's offered today. The babe in a manger is not just some kid who will bring good leadership to a nation. 
The baby born in Bethlehem is worshiped, is eternal, and he's the sovereign God. May we all come and worship him today. Heavenly Father, we thank you that this invitation has been extended for all of us to come and adore Jesus. Lord, I pray for the many today, the many who have perhaps refused to say yes before today. May today they say yes to you. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord's working in your heart. You've got a decision to make. You've got questions about church membership. You need prayer. The Lord's working in your heart. You take opportunity to respond to him today. I want to invite you to stand as our choir sings. You respond.